0: Despite the admirable US system and the checks and balances that exist and so on, there was a fundamental corruption around the Trump administration. I think the UK administration is on the verge of being that.
1: Welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. On today's episode, we are thrilled to welcome Robert Barrington on the podcast. Robert is a professor of anti-corruption practice at the Center for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex in the United Kingdom. He's also the former Executive Director of Transparency International UK. In the interview with Matthew Stevenson, they take a deep dive into anti-corruption legislation in the UK, including the Bribery Act and the unexplained wealth order. Have fun with the interview.
2: Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the Global Anti Corruption Podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and I am thrilled to welcome to this episode of the podcast Robert Barrington. Robert has had a long and distinguished career in the anti corruption world, especially in the United Kingdom. He is currently a professor of anti corruption practice at the University of Sussex's Center for the Study of Corruption. Before that, He spent over a decade as the executive director of Transparency International's UK office. Uh, He also served as a member of Transparency International's Global Board from 2017 to 2019 and is currently the chair of TI's International Council and has been since 2020. Robert, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast.
0: Matthew, it's a pleasure. I'm very honored to be part of it.
2: Terrific. Well, maybe you can start out by telling me and telling our listening audience a little bit more about your own background. How did you come to be interested in anti-corruption and involved in uh, the anti-corruption movement?
0: Sure. Well, um, I'm a Renaissance historian by background, uh, which uh, has its own history of corruption, of course. And in the uh, 1990s, I was working for an environmental organisation. My passion was really uh, in international development and the environment. And then I went to work in the City of London, the finance district of the UK. And the sectors that I had to cover included extractives, defence, aerospace, pharmaceuticals and tobacco. And covering those sectors at that period, you couldn't but be interested in the subject of corruption. It was just beginning to be realized by companies as a risk, partly because of the greater FCPA enforcement. And I'd always felt that because I came from an NGO into the city, I was really working in the city undercover, just trying to work out how an earth global capitalism worked. And uh, with the thought that after five years, I would leave and do something uh, better with my life. And uh, in fact, after six years, um, I started looking around for something else and uh, had a short list of organizations I really thought it would be interesting to work for, and TI was uh, top of that list. So I uh, had a conversation with TI and ended up at TI UK and uh, stayed there, as you said, for uh, over a decade.
2: So I want to ask a lot of questions about your tenure as the TI UK Executive Director, but before I do, something you just said was was really interesting, and I think even though we've known each other for a little while, I hadn't really thought about that much, which is that you spent six years in the city of London in finance, basically. So you came from the NGO world into the the financial world and then back into the NGO world. I think you were sort of half joking as being in the finance world undercover, as it were. But can you say a little bit about what you took from that experience to your work in the NGO world? I mean, many people who work in NGOs, whether they're anti-corruption NGOs or environmental NGOs or what have you, don't have that kind of background working for six six years in one of the industries or several of the industries that are often the the target of concern. So did that in some important way shape your perspective or cause you to think about these issues maybe a different way than you would have thought about them had you not had that experience?
0: Yeah, I think very much so. I worked in an asset management company in their um, governance and sustainable investing division, and uh, we invested in companies all around the world. And I suppose, you know, one big thing I took from that was um, an in-depth understanding of how the private sector operates, what are the drivers, what are the motivations, uh, what companies can and can't do, what they can achieve. I think that's been really important in terms of engaging companies subsequently and trying to persuade companies to improve their behavior, but also when talking to government to do that with the, um, I think, the self-confidence of knowing that you're talking sense about what the private sector's limitations and opportunities are. And, you know, I guess for me, that was probably the biggest thing about going to the city. When I left Oxford in the 1980s, loads of my contemporaries went into the city. And I always had this question, you know, was I good enough? how did I compare to them? And then I went to work in the city and I realized exactly what it was. It was a load of very bright people who were making loads of money and generally with uh, not very strong sense of principle. But they did have one principle, which is that uh, this sort of um, emphasis on shareholder value and the importance of getting returns from companies, and they were, as shareholders, pressing companies to do that. And I, at the same time, saw very good people within companies who felt under pressure from the shareholders to get those returns on investment and not necessarily take into account those other factors, the what are now known as the ESG, the Environmental, Social and Governance Factors. So I could see that you know sort of uh, trade-off between what investors were pushing for and what companies felt they uh, needed to deliver, and good people in companies who were probably a, bit, a little bit caught between the two. So, uh, you know, I think you learn a lot by being in that kind of environment. And the crucial thing is not to get sucked into it and uh, convoluted by it so you can escape eventually.
2: So You did escape and you escaped to Transparency International's UK office. And again, you were there for over a decade, I think almost exactly 11 years. And a lot happened in that time. Tell me a little bit, if you can, about what you came into that position thinking that you were going to do what were the main agenda items on on your radar screen at the time you started, and then maybe if you can talk a little bit about how things changed over the course of your 11 years in that position. A lot was happening, a lot was changing in the anti-corruption community and the world generally between 2008 and two thousand nineteen.
0: Yeah, a lot was changing in both TI and in the world in general and in the world of uh, corruption and anti-corruption studies and practice. And uh, when I came in, uh, the TI office in London was tiny. I was the, um, the third full-time employee. And when I left, it was uh, about 55 people. So there was a huge, uh, you know, just as a kind of management studies issue, it was really fascinating to see organizational growth. And the reason it grew was because there was a great sense um, in the UK, I think, of the importance of this subject and successive governments gradually getting on board with um, the fact that uh, something needed to be done more than was being done at the moment, and donors following that lead from government. So, you know, from our point of view in the UK, persuading the government to take this seriously was uh, really big. And when I came in 2008, we didn't have a bribery act. TI had been campaigning for a number of years for a UK bribery act. And the first big campaign was to try and secure the bribery act And in order to do that, you had to convince a slightly reluctant government that this was a subject to be taken seriously. So um, that was really, you know, the big part of my brief when I first came in. The government then changed. It moved from the the um, Blair-Gordon Brown government into the David Cameron coalition government. And that was really a big opportunity for us because we felt that there was a government there that could be persuaded to do stuff that other governments hadn't in the past. And uh, we launched what we called our corrupt capital campaign, which was really trying to highlight the role of London in particular. Uh, So back to my city roots there um, as a centre of uh, global money laundering, of the proceeds of corruption and so on. And eventually that caught the um, attention of the Cameron government. And uh, then the sort of uh, apotheosis, as it were, was the anti-corruption summit in 2016, almost exactly five years ago from the date we're recording this. And from that anti-corruption summit came a a lot of other things that we would um, have campaigned for and really hoped to uh, to get done. Unexplained wealth orders, a UK national anti-corruption strategy, the uh, new impetus to the beneficial ownership transparency campaign, um, a large number of those things. So it was, you know, a huge era of change in the UK's approach to corruption and within TI as an institution in the UK.
2: Perfect. So I want to ask you about all of those things, but maybe we should start with that first thing that you said was your highest priority agenda item right when you came in, which was the UK Bribery Act. So, of course, the United States had enacted its Foreign Corrupt, uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act back in uh, 1977. There, the OECD convention, to which the UK was a party, came into force in the mid-1990s. But of course, the UK claimed, I gather, that it was in compliance with its obligations under that convention because of a bunch of laws that it already had on the book, some of which were a century or more uh, old. And Transparency International and other advocates did not think this was satisfactory and, and pushed for a new statute, which you eventually got, which in some ways goes beyond the USFCPA in terms of it, at least its potential uh, sweep. So I know you've written a little bit about this before. You wrote a piece on, on uh, the Global Anti-Corruption Blog that I uh, run a little while back about this. But I think it would be really useful to talk a bit about how that campaign worked. I mean, ultimately, it's not like TIUK single-handedly did this or anything like that. But, but you and your organization did play a significant role in lobbying for this legal change that the government was initially at least reluctant to embrace. So what were the ingredients, would you say, of the successful strategy, maybe even though every situation is different, I imagine some people listening to this podcast are in their own countries trying to think about the best way to lobby their own governments to undertake similar sorts of dramatic uh, or at least substantial legal reforms. What, what lessons did you take from this experience in terms of what can make this kind of anti-corruption lobbying effort successful?
0: Yeah, it's worthwhile saying that I, I got a lot of um, it, unjustified praise myself for leading that bribery act campaign. In fact, it was really, you know, the work of loads of people around TI and before I joined the organisation, as well as a coalition. That uh, in the nature of these coalitions, it was a very small coalition initially, but it grew quite substantially as success was in sight. But if I look back at the years before I joined TI, TI had done some things really well. So uh, first off, it can it maintained very good. Um, active discussions with the OECD and the external pressure from the OECD anti-bribery working group and Mark Pierre were really uh, critical. Mark Pierre, the chair of that um, anti-bribery working group at the time, they were really critical on uh, creating external pressure on the UK. Within the UK, the process stalled because the government um, really wasn't very interested, but there were a couple of significant things. The first was that uh, there was the BAE system scandal. BAE accused of uh, paying large bribes to Saudi Arabia for its al-Yamama contract. And that really gained a lot of public attention. And uh, one of our coalition partners, the Corner House, was uh, playing a big role in that in terms of taking judicial reviews of the government's um, uh, position in some of those issues. So that was very important, the, the, that particular scandal. And timing these things around a scandal is hugely helpful because it really does give public attention in it means politicians feel they have to do something. But there was a sort of slightly intellectual argument to be won as well, which is uh, what does a good modern anti-bribery law look like? And the government had claimed for a while that um, uh, it was actually not really possible to uh, improve on the current British laws, even though there were no prosecutions happening under them. And TI's sort of um, real campaigning coup, I think, was it commissioned some professional uh, parliamentary draft people to, to write a new law. And it got a group of um, good lawyers around the table to sort out what a new law would look like. And this was introduced as a private members bill into uh, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So it it sort of took away that argument. It's impossible to put this into um, modern legal language. Then there was a law commission report which um, uh, took those ideas and took them forward into what became the Bribery Act. So I think the combination of scandal, coalition, and uh, drafting the law, so uh, you won the intellectual intellectual battle, was really crucial. But then there were some really important tactical points as we began to close in on victory, and um, victory was never quite assured because we knew that Parliament was coming to the end of its term, that if we didn't win it in that Parliament, the Tory government, which was likely to win, was never going to reintroduce it. They told us that, even though they wouldn't oppose it in opposition, they weren't going to introduce it if it was lost. So winning that tactical battle at the end was hard. And then we, we really found that um, the opponents came out of the woodwork and fought very hard. And the opponents were effectively large corporates and their representatives who didn't want this law to be uh, to come into force, to be passed and come into force. So um, we played a sort of parliamentary tactical game with them. And what we found was that TI had a huge number of allies within parliament that we never really knew about before. But um, You know, I spent weeks on the phone to um, MPs and members of the House of Lords trying to speak to everybody I could. We produced numerous briefing papers um, trying to undermine the opposition arguments. And eventually that proved successful. But it really was on a knife edge. It passed, um, I think, a day before Parliament uh, was prorogued, as it's called. It came to an end before the election.
2: Now, did you find any allies within the private and corporate sector? And one of the reasons I asked about this is that With respect to the US FCPA, which I know is I know a bit better than the UK Bribery Act, although there has always been some opposition by US corporations to the law, especially before the OECD convention and so forth, there's also been some degree of support. Some corporations, some company leaders and so forth will say things like, We don't like to pay bribes in foreign countries, and we kind of like the fact that something like the FCPA exists because it gives us a little bit more of an excuse, if you will, or more leverage to resist bribe demand. So my impression is that at least in US politics, there's a bit of a division in the corporate world about those companies that complain about the SCPA that like former President Trump say it's a horrible law that disadvantages US corporations. And those that say, you know, we kind of like this, we we like the fact that we can point to uh, this law in the background as a way to resist the bribe demands we face in foreign countries. Was there anything like that dynamic in the debates leading up to or following the enactment of the UK Bribery Act? Or in the UK, was it pretty much the corporate sector was lined up down the line, kind of staunchly against the new law?
0: Well, I had hoped, uh, coming out of the city and with quite a lot of contacts in the corporate world, I had hoped that we'd precisely be able to pursue that strategy of finding the, the corporates that were supportive. And it turned out that we just couldn't do that. In fact, there was one point at a critical moment in the campaign when we wanted to try and get uh, a letter in the Financial Times signed by CEOs of large companies in support of the Bribery Act. I rang around everybody I knew, all the, you know, all the, all the contacts in uh, chief executive offices, sometimes the chief executives themselves. I managed a grand total of two, one of whom was the CEO of the former company I'd worked for in the city, who I, I knew I could strong arm into it. So uh, that was a failed strategy from our point of view. And what we found was that most companies uh, either didn't want to put their head above the parapet or claimed that they had sort of fairly narrow technical grounds for um, not supporting a particular um, article of the act, which was enough for them to say that they wouldn't support uh, support it publicly. Inevitably, you know, one concluded that there was strong resistance amongst big corporates uh, expressed mainly through their trade body, the, the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, which was sort of leading the charge. So, no individual companies had to come out against the Bribery Act because the the trade body did it on their behalf. And then, in fact, once the Act was passed into law, um, it had an unusually long period before um, uh, it commenced, so formally came into force, uh, because there was a sort of fierce rearguard action against the Act, some uh, calling for it to be repealed before it had even started, some of them mounted a big PR and press campaign against it, again, you know, dealing largely through trade bodies, and particularly the CBI, And the battleground in part became about the guidance, the official guidance that the Ministry of Justice had to issue. And there was a sense from companies, I think, that if they could water down the guidance, then this act wouldn't be uh, quite as uh, nasty as as it might be otherwise. But this, again, was where TI tactically scored a great sort of uh, hit, is that um, we knew that uh, because it was in the legislation, the Ministry of Justice guidance would be required and nobody knew what adequate procedures guidance would look like. Um, There was no manual for it. So uh, TI, within about six weeks of the act being passed, published a 100-page document which was this is what adequate procedures guidance looks like. And that was beneficial for a couple of reasons. The first, it meant that when the Ministry of Justice came out with its own guidance, it couldn't really go much below that without being open to the charge of you're setting the bar too low. And the second was because it was taking so long and companies wanted to uh, have some kind of certainty, Uh, they wanted to start implementing their anti-corruption systems, the adequate procedures, Uh, then TI's guidance became the default document they were working with. So for about um, a year, TI's guidance filled that vacuum, and by the time the guidance was eventually published by the Ministry of Justice and the Bribery Act commenced, uh, then they had very little wiggle room to, uh, to water down the guidance.
2: And just to clarify for some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with UK Bribery Act, I take it when you refer to adequate procedures, you're referring to the provision in the UK Bribery Act that although liability for companies is strict, if their employees or agents pay bribes, they, there is a defense against liability if you can show that you had adequate procedures in place to prevent bribery and the bribery that occurred took place despite the adequate procedures. That, that's right, Yes.
0: That's exactly it. And, uh, you know, at the time, that was seen as quite a neat way of um, persuading companies to uh, put in place good anti-corruption compliance procedures. You'll know, of course, that um, uh, subsequently the French law, law the loi saint uh, is actually firmer in requiring companies to have in place an anti-corruption system. In uh, the case of the Bribery Act, the UK law, it's not a requirement, but it's a defence. Uh, so it's sensible to have it.
2: So it seems like one of the things that TIUK did that may be applicable in other contexts and in other countries is it sounds like you guys really, you and your coalition partners, really tried to set the agenda both for the law and the guidance by coming out with first a draft text of a model law to refute in advance the idea that like you just couldn't, that what could you do? There's no way you could write a law that would do this. And then subsequently drafting the guidance to basically set the agenda for this is what corporations should be expected to do. And so instead of just saying in general terms, there should be a law and there should be guidance, you guys came out with, as if you were the legislative drafts people or the ministry, the, the text. Did I have that basically right? This, this was a big part of the strategy.
0: Yeah, that, that was very much it. I mean, it was really clear that we were completely outgunned in terms of resources by those who wanted this law not to pass or wanted weak guidance, you know, they, they hired PR agencies, they had big corporate resources behind them, they were able to um, have articles in the press that, you know, we, we never quite managed. But we had some advantages on our side, we felt we could win the, the sort of the battle of ideas. And in this space, you know, winning the battle ideas was a big part of it, because actually, the detailed text of the legislation and of the guidance was effectively a battle of ideas. So we decided we, we couldn't, you know, match the firepower of the big corporates in terms of the lobbying. But what we could do was win the battle of ideas and then try and get that to um, win the day with those who were prepared to listen. And there was great support from the civil service, I should say. So, you know, the civil servants who were drafting the law and were um, responsible for the guidance were very receptive to the ideas. And I don't want to say that the entire corporate sector was, um, you know, on, on the side of evil in this. Because clearly, there's, you know, there, there are lots of nuances, position, uh, nuances of position. There were some corporates that had just set their stall against it, and there was um, no way of persuading them. Even in the companies that were um, very strongly against this through their lobby group, the CBI, we found really good individuals, often compliance experts, who were very receptive to what we were talking about. Uh, so although their companies publicly wouldn't uh, come out in support of the Bribery Act, We felt there was some kind of level of internal common sense and support, which, once this was all done and dusted, would prevail. And indeed, that's what happened. You know, when uh, the Act was passed and the guidance was published, we were able to work very constructively with uh, general counsels, heads of compliance, those kind of positions uh, to make sure that uh, the Act worked in
2: practice. Speaking of the Act working in practice, that's exactly the thing I want to ask about you next, which is that we've been talking about... Uh, the campaign leading up to the enactment of the UK Bribery Act, but it's been around for over a decade now. And I'm interested in your perspective as someone who obviously follows these issues very closely uh, and who was deeply personally involved in the creation of this thing in the first place. How well do you think it's worked? Looking back on over a decade of the UK Bribery Act in practice, how would you assess its overall performance? Where do you think uh, it's shown strengths and effectiveness and where... Do you think there is room for improvement or maybe some disappointment?
0: I think the first thing to say is that um, I am in no doubt that the UK and the world in general is better off with it than without it. So I think it's important to have it there. Uh, And inevitably, in these things, there are strengths and weaknesses. Um, As I've come into academia from TI, I've, of course, read a lot more of the academic literature, which I have to say is pretty negative about the anti-corruption movement in general and seems to think it's a sort of catalogue of errors and failure. And I don't share that view. So, you know, I'm probably more optimistic than you'll find uh, some of your interlocutors on this uh, this podcast. And in general, you know, I think with any law like this, we knew it was going to take a time to bed in. So the prosecutions wouldn't necessarily be quick, and you wouldn't necessarily get them in huge numbers. So to that extent, I would have thought, you know, over a 10 year horizon, there might have been a few more than we've had, but not necessarily a large number because it's the deterrent effect as much as anything else. Having said that, I can't help being disappointed. So I'm disappointed in two areas. The first is, I think, the government resourcing of the uh, the prosecuting agency in the UK, the Serious Fraud Office, has just been too low. And if you compare it to the firepower and the teeth of the DOJ in the US, um, the SFO is simply under-resourced. And that has all sorts of implications, not just in staffing numbers, but in terms of you know your ability to plan big investigations, your ability to pursue things over a long period, the caseload you can take on, and so on. So that's been a disappointment. I think the big disappointment has also been a lack of prosecution of individuals. The very first prosecutions under the Bribery Act, which of course, corporates opposed because they thought it was aimed at them, the first three were all of individuals uh, accused of uh, paying bribes within the UK Uh, and each of those individuals received a jail sentence. They weren't, you know, CEOs of big corporates paying large bribes uh, overseas. They were a student, a taxi driver and a port clerk, and they all got jailed. And yet uh, we see big cases like the Rolls-Royce case settled through a deferred prosecution agreement where nobody has gone to jail. So for me, this is, you know, a fundamental problem in the system is that, yes, of course, you need to uh, punish the large corporates, fine them, uh, hopefully introduce a debarment regime, which is far too weak in the UK. But ultimately, you've also got to understand that individuals are responsible for this. A company is simply an entity on a piece of paper. It's made up of individuals and they were the people who committed the crime. And if they're not held to account, then I think the system fails.
2: So there's so much more. I would love to ask you about the Bribery Act and the points that you just made, but I want to make sure I leave us enough time to talk about some of the other important campaigns, initiatives, and so forth that you were part of during your time at TIUK. There are two in particular that I want to make sure we at least have some time to mention, uh, the Unexplained Wealth Order law and the uh, Beneficial Ownership Register. So let's, uh, let's start with Unexplained Wealth Orders. Some of our listeners likely know immediately what I'm talking about, what you're talking about when you say unexplained wealth order, UWO, other people might not be as familiar with it. So can you provide our listeners with a little bit of background on unexplained wealth orders, what they are, where they came from, why you and your colleagues at TIUK and elsewhere thought that uh, they were important as a mechanism to create in fighting corruption and associated wrongdoing.
0: The crucial background to this is, as I mentioned earlier, that TI UK had um, started a corrupt capital campaign in which we determined to look at what was the proceeds of corruption that were flowing uh, through the UK and the overseas territories and the Crown dependencies. Uh, where was the money ending up? How much was it? Uh, all those questions. And we were pretty shocked by what we found. You know, We knew that London, increasingly amongst the TI chapters around the world, was getting a reputation for being the place that the kleptocrats from those countries were sending their money not exclusively london obviously other places as well but london was certainly a big destination so we felt we ought to look into it we did look into it and we found uh, that it was happening at a very large scale under our noses and apparently nothing could be done and one of the reasons nothing could be done whenever we talked to the authorities in the uk is they said uh, well unless there is a conviction in the country of origin for corruption, we can't touch the proceeds that are here in the UK. So we set out to resolve that problem. And it happened that in UNCAC, uh, the UN Convention, there was uh, an illicit enrichment provision. And so we started uh, a task force of uh, eminent uh, legal minds and civil society in the UK to look at what an illicit enrichment law might look like in the UK. And I was anticipating that uh, this group would come up with the idea, yes, the UK needs an enlisted enrichment law. In fact, Jeremy Horder, a very eminent uh, legal professor at the LSE who was, had chaired the Law Commission report on the Bribery Bill, uh, came up with this great idea of unexplained wealth orders. He felt that that was going to be um, more winnable politically in the UK and it was a, a fairly elegant legal solution. And the idea behind it is that if you're unable to explain where your wealth comes from, Uh, and there are reasonable grounds for suspicion uh, that it is of um, corrupt origin, then the assets can be frozen and you then have to prove that the wealth was legitimately obtained. So having been through this process with uh, this task force, we came out with a report. We played it into uh, the government around the time of the anti-corruption summit. So it was very good timing because the government was looking for new ideas. And uh, a year later, it became law in the Criminal Finances Act. Uh, so the UK now has this provision for unexplained wealth orders. Uh, I'm sure your next question will be, how well has that worked? But the first tick in the box is a bit like the Bribery Act. At least we have the law in place.
2: You you read my mind. Uh, we don't have as much experience now with the unexplained wealth order law as we do with the UK Bribery Act. The UK Bribery Act we've had for over a decade. The unexplained wealth order law has only been around for, I guess, three or four years now, roughly. And so it may be a little bit It may be too soon to really evaluate the UK Bribery Act, as you said. After one decade, it takes a while. Um, We've got even less time for the unexplained wealth order law. But still, you, you read my mind. I would love to get your assessment of, in its first few years, if you have the sense that the law is working the way that you and other supporters had hoped that it would, if there are particular challenges or deficiencies that maybe you hadn't fully anticipated you need to address? What would be your preliminary kind of three, four years in assessment of the UWO law?
0: The thing I'd really focus on is that in these three or four years, uh, it hasn't been as successful as we hoped, but we have seen some of the flaws in it. And that itself is quite helpful. As you were just intimating, you know, I think one does have to look at the long term on these things and the extent to which any law does or doesn't work is the result of lots of things, partly the resourcing, partly inevitably the political will, partly uh, the mood of the time, the priorities that are set, those uh, those sort of things. I'm encouraged, when I look at the Bribery Act, by the way, um, by the fact that uh, the FCPA, uh, which, as you mentioned, dated from 1977, wasn't, you know, really the force it is today until the early 2000s. So I think that's the timescale one might be looking at for the Bribery Act because it is those other Things that come into play, the uh, the resourcing, the political will, the you know the scandals that uh, give it a impetus, those those kind of things. For unexplained wealth orders, likewise, uh, you know it's a short time frame in which we might have seen success, but we haven't seen success. What we have seen is that the law enforcement agencies are pretty timid about using this. At the last minute, when the unexplained wealth orders were being drafted, they they got adapted for a secondary purpose. TI had put this idea forward because we felt it would be important in terms of tackling the proceeds of corruption. And there was then a question in Parliament uh, or, or uh, in the drafting of the law, at what level should you say somebody's assets can be considered for this? Uh, so is this just anybody in the street who could be served an unexplained wealth order? Is it somebody with an assets above a certain threshold? which you're worried about. TI always felt that um, the level of about a million pounds was right because, uh, frankly, if it's the proceeds of international corruption, um, then that's, you know, the minimum level we're really interested in. That actually got reduced in the legislation to £50,000. And the reason for that was because the law enforcement agencies felt this could be a good weapon in their parallel fight against organized crime. And there might well be organized criminals that uh, they could get within their nets if the threshold was set that low. So I think it's quite possible that this will prove to be a very effective tool against uh, organized criminals in the UK, even though it hasn't been widely used for that. And it will be less successful against the kleptocrats uh, who were its original sort of um, purpose. And the big reason for that, when you talk to law enforcement agencies in the UK, is that they are timid uh, that the ones that they have tried so far, there's been a lot of pushback by the lawyers uh, of the, the said kleptocrats, who uh, will unpick the uh, the case that has been made in, you know, in every detail, any slight hole in it, any doubt they can sow in the judge's mind, they will sow, because ultimately, this uh, isn't, you know, it doesn't go to jury trial, this is a decision by a judge. So uh, what we have seen is that effectively, the UK law enforcement is vastly outgunned by the, the power and money of the kleptocrats hiring top uh, London legal um, representatives to undermine the case put forward by law enforcement agencies. So this is a problem in the system. To me, it raises a question that's always been going around in my mind, which is, what's the role of these so-called professional enablers in this? The law firms, the accountants, um, not just the estate agents who are often in the the focus on this, but really, you know, those who I, I would expect would proceed with a certain measure of professional ethics and integrity. So particularly lawyers and accountants who for whom you know those are meant to be a guiding star in their professions. So I think there's an important piece of work to be done in the UK and I'm sure in other jurisdictions uh, specifically about um, the professional ethics and integrity of lawyers and accountants when taking on some of these vastly dodgy clients.
2: Yeah, that that raises a whole set of interesting questions, which I'd love to ask you a little bit more about. Um, I have to say I'm, I'm very sympathetic, uh, very much in agreement with your general statement that the so-called professional enablers and middlemen need to be mu- much more the focus of scrutiny. I suppose that I'm not a lawyer myself, but I, I teach them, and I suppose part of me expels a little bit of resistance when you suggest that it's a problem that these people hire fancy lawyers to poke any they can of the government's case, because one might think, well, you know, if the government is going to be essentially taking all of your stuff and freezing your assets, they better be able to prove their case and people ought to be able to hire lawyers to make sure the government has actually satisfied the legal requirements for, you know, just, just like even criminals deserve a, a defense. Uh, I would imagine, I mean, I guess I'm saying, don't you think there's a little bit of a difference between lawyers facilitating clients doing illegal things, uh, which obviously should be targeted and, you know, lawyers putting the government to their proof and trying to find any weakness in their argument that, in fact, the assets in question are the product of unlawful activity?
0: I think you're quite right that um, you don't want a society in which the state can just uh, uh, seize your stuff. On the other hand, if you have stolen it in the first place, you would want the state to get it back for the people you stole it from. And that's the problem that we're faced. So You know, I think uh, I'm disappointed by the fact that uh, some of the top London law firms represent these people and not only represent them, um, they will uh, fight hard against civil society and the media and bloggers, people who will put out their client's name in the public domain and accuse them quite rightly or not accuse them, but actually highlight where they have acted corruptly. I mean, you know, I myself as the head of TI, we were sued three times and uh, we were pretty innocuous compared to lots of the, um, the activists out there. And it's nasty. You know, you don't want to be sued. Uh, there were times when um, I was concerned that uh, the whole house was going to come tumbling down because we couldn't afford the, um, the legal fees. Luckily, we had great pro bono lawyers, uh, libel lawyers who, um, who helped us out. But, uh, you know, that's the privilege of being in TI. You have access to, uh, to those people. And, you know, I don't want to write off all lawyers by any means because lawyers have been fantastic in the anti-corruption cause. But uh, there is a cadre of uh, lawyers who certainly put uh, the goal of protecting their clients' interests far above the goal of the rule of law, about what is right and wrong, above the interests of those from whom the um, assets have been stolen in the first place. And frankly, I think that's wrong. And uh, we need to work out what to do about it. Of course, those professional enablers, the lawyers um, who do this, and it's by no means all lawyers, but those who do it, always have the defence we're operating in the interests of justice. Every person needs a defense. Uh, Every person has a right to a defense. And of course, one has sympathy for that argument. It has to be the right argument that every person has a right to defense. TI's position on this, which I thoroughly agree with, is, well, if that's your belief, you should conduct the defense at legal aid rates. So uh, you shouldn't be um, taking uh, several millions of pounds from the kleptocrat, uh, which is what enables you effectively to um, outgun the law enforcement agencies in the UK. The system at the moment is that uh, if you're a corrupt kleptocrat with money in London, you can buy better justice, and that cannot
2: be right. And no argument here. That strikes me as a, as a general problem with legal systems from top to bottom, but but certainly a, a problem that's present here. I, I, there are so many other things I would love to ask you about, including the, the beneficial ownership transparency initiatives and so forth. But I feel like we, we don't have that much time left. And, and one thing that we haven't even mentioned so far in this conversation, which I feel like ought to come up in some respect, is you know Brexit and everything that's been happening in the UK uh, over the last five odd years. And there's so many different dimensions to this, but I guess maybe my, the way I would lead into it would be something like this. You referenced that we're coming up on five years since the London Anti-Corruption Summit, which was really supported very strongly by then Prime Minister David Cameron and my impression I'm an outsider to all this but my impression is that whatever else one might think of David Cameron he was really going to make anti-corruption a central priority of his foreign policy that seemed to be a, a kind of almost like a pet issue for him and now we've got a different administration and coupled with even if we put COVID aside the separation of the UK from the European Union. And does that make a difference? I mean, how much of a difference has it made to the fight against corruption in the UK with respect to the UK's role in facilitating global corruption and so on and so forth that we've had these dramatic changes since that summit in 2016? How much has that impacted your work and the work of your colleagues?
0: That summit was um, held on May the 12th, 2016. And on May the 13th, I woke up thinking, wow, you know, what, what can we not achieve in this country in the fight against corruption and what a global influence we'll have? And, you know, there was the prospect of several more years of a Cameron government hugely supportive of this agenda uh, and a democratic successor to Obama in the US who would be a, a full partner in that global endeavour. Well, you know, a, a very short period later, I was on the floor. I mean, my God, it felt terrible. And it, I found myself within TI having to sort of you know, keep up the morale of the troops by saying, uh, look, you know, this is um, uh, not as we planned it, but there's still stuff we can do and so on. But personally, I felt, you know, really, really um, deflated by it, um, both in the US and in the UK. As I look now in retrospect, you know, I definitely see that 2016 summit. Uh, where you know John Kerry was a huge part of um, that global momentum along with David Cameron, I felt that that was the high watermark. You know, that that was as good as it has got for the anti-corruption movement in the years of its existence. But it doesn't mean that everything since then, although that's a high watermark, it doesn't mean the water has receded out of sight. So there were still accomplishments that can be built on. And I guess it's a little bit like uh, the Bribery Act or the FCPA back to 1977. That you know, Once that stuff is there, as long as it's not taken away, then a change of administration, a change of circumstance means that um, it can be reinvigorated. So I see lots of stuff there from 2016 that um, was you know, put on the table. Sometimes it was put into statute. Sometimes it was other kinds of commitments. Uh, and it can be reinvigorated both in the UK and elsewhere. However, you know, Brexit has caused um, a huge upset in the UK body politic. And that has both economic implications uh, which means that the UK may be looking to uh, trade with new partners who, frankly, you know, don't have a great record on uh, uh, corruption. It means that the UK may be looking not to deter oligarchs and kleptocrats with loads of money, but actually attract them because the UK wants inward investment. So the UK is vulnerable to this um, economically, uh, much more so than it was five years ago. I think the big change actually is uh, the basic integrity of the current government that, you know, I think in the past, uh, we have seen governments that have taken issues like uh, the rule of law and standards in public life very seriously. We see a government in the UK at the moment that is on the verge, I would say, of being corrupt. Now, I've never said that before about the UK government. uh, And it's a word you use very lightly, I think, of governments. But in the same way, I think there was a community in the US who reached the conclusion that despite the, you know, the admirable US system and the checks and balances that exist and so on, there was a fundamental corruption around the Trump administration. Uh, I think the UK administration is on the verge of being that. And I worry about that because it means that the UK will have neither the um, uh, motivation nor the uh, moral authority to do anything on corruption beyond its own borders.
2: So that's uh, dispiriting, to say the least. But I do take some comfort from the fact that, as you point out, we're playing a long game to some degree, that you can get changes, you can get legal reforms, you can get uh, infrastructure, legally speaking, in place, that even if it's not uh, used now or used to the full extent, it's there and could be picked up at the appropriate moment with a different government, with a different set of Priorities. Um, We're almost out of time, and 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 again, I don't want to keep you for for too long. But um, maybe maybe just because I don't want to end on such a depressing note, I want to ask you, looking looking ahead, right? If you're talking, if you're talking to someone who was in uh, the position you were in when you started out as the executive director of TIUK back in 2008, thinking for the next 10 years for the people who are going to be working on these issues. Possibly in the UK, but we could generalize this in the world. Um, What would you say ought to be the highest priority agenda items or the main issues or challenges that we should be focused on? I mean, as as you know, corruption is such a big and complicated problem. There's so many aspects to it. There's unfortunately just a long, long list of things that need to be done. But of course, we need to set priorities and we need to try to think strategically. And of course, we sometimes just take advantage of targets of opportunity, as it were, but it's, it's useful to think about what the, what the bigger picture ought to look like. So given that you've had uh, so much experience working on these issues in the trenches, and then also having had the opportunity to think of them over the last couple of years from a more scholarly or academic perspective, what what would you say to that? What, what would you say to that question? What What should be the the main items or uh, points of focus for the anti-corruption movement over the next decade?
0: That's a tough question, Matthew, because uh, the truth is that the forces ranged against um, the anti-corruption movement are probably stronger than they have been for a while. And, you know, the the rise of authoritarian governments, of corrupt populists, of uh, kleptocrats, uh, their capacity for repression using new technologies, the suppression of civil society and the media, you know, this is this is going to carry on as a trend uh, the next decade. I think we can be certain of that. So, you know, my response would be to find out what our strengths are and build on our strengths, because we know that there are those countervailing forces that are going to be pretty damn hard in the next decade. One of our strengths, I think, is the fact that although there is a debate about cultural norms and corruption and so on, everywhere I go in the world, citizens hate corruption. And that has to be something that we always keep hold of. Ordinary people suffer from corruption, it magnifies inequality and justice, all the things that we all know about. Um, And so people dislike it. So, you know, I think there's a, a big opportunity amongst citizen voices. Now, in lots of countries, that will be irrelevant. In North Korea, citizen, voice, citizen voices against corruption—you know—that's not going to be your winning strategy. But in lots of countries, it is something to take hold of. In the U.S., clearly, it wasn't solely a vote about if at all a vote about corruption that um, saw Biden supersede Trump. On the other hand, in democratic countries, there is a possibility of um, getting political change. And one of the strengths, I think, if I look at the U.S., is a Biden administration. Uh, which is clearly willing to make waves around the world, and uh, there is an opportunity there. Likewise, um, you know, in other mature democracies, I think there are opportunities for citizens to have their voice on this issue through the ballot box and elsewhere. And I think the Biden linking of uh, the democratic agenda, as in small d democratic, uh, the summit for democracies and the anti-corruption agenda is uh, a glimpse of hope for the world in this. So I think it will need a coalition of, countries, of citizens, of civil society organisations, of academics, of businesses, those who see the benefits of tackling corruption, not just for themselves, but for the people of the world, to uh, get together in a coalition. The question, of course, is leadership. Who's going to lead that? I think there is only one place in the world that can come from in the next three or four years, and that has to be the U.S., so, uh, I'm, you know, along with lots of people, I'm, I won't say disappointed in um, what the Biden administration has said to date on kleptocracy and corruption, but I'm certainly waiting in expectation uh, that it will do something pretty substantial, because I think that is one of the big hopes that we've got. So, you know, I would just finish by saying, One of the things I've always loved about TI, and I think most people don't recognise about uh, Transparency International, people are quick to say, well, TI is the Corruption Perceptions Index, and that's got all sorts of flaws. But actually, TI is 100 chapters in countries around the world, and each of those is plugged into its local population. And each of those populations has victims of corruption and has strong feelings against corruption. And in many of those countries, there are opportunities for change. So uh, that would be my optimism, would be um, what we see through TI and others in terms of the, uh, the global reach uh, that the fight against corruption has and the fact people feel so strongly about it.
2: Well, great. I'm glad that we can end our conversation on a more optimistic note rather than uh, doom and gloom because it is so easy working in this area to be a bit doom and gloom, given the pervasiveness of the problem. And as you've said at several points in our conversation, The forces arrayed against progress are um, powerful and and numerous, Um, but I think it's uh, worth taking to heart what you have said about the need to take the long view and to build that foundation and also what you just said about keeping in mind the fact that citizens around the world uh, hate corruption. They don't like the fact their governments are corrupt. They resent the fact that, that, that people who are powerful get special privileges and can enrich themselves at, at, at uh, the expense of ordinary uh, men and women. So it's, uh, it's good to know that, that we at least have that on our side. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me and to all of our listeners today on the podcast. Again, my name is Matthew Stevenson, and our guest today on Kickback has been Robert Barrington, uh, formerly, uh, for over a decade, the Executive Director of Transparency International's UK office, and currently a professor of anti-corruption practice at the Center for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex in the United Kingdom. Robert, thank you again uh, for sharing your time and insights with us today.
0: Thank you, Matthew.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about Robert's work at the Center for the Study of Corruption, check out the show notes of this episode. Also make sure to listen to our other episodes we recorded with the leading voices from Transparency International, including Michael Hirschman, who is one of the founders of TI. As always, if you like what we do, there are three main ways to support us. Write us a review on your favorite podcast platform, follow us on Twitter under kickbackgap, and if you can spare a few bucks, become a Patreon at www.patreon.com/kickbackpodcast. Everything we receive goes directly back into the podcast. Kickback is a joint production. By the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleimpers, and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Golkar. That's it for today. Have a great week.